0: The following is a conversation with ai Pooh, Executive Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and Sarita Gupta, Director of Ford Foundation's Future of Workers Program, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. A crucial lesson to come out of the recent trauma that America has experienced is just how important the essential worker is to the American economy, who that worker truly is, how she has been undervalued, and how so many of us depend upon her. Two people who are determined that we not forget that lesson are with us now. They are Aijan Pu, the co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and Sarita Gupta, the director of the Future of Workers at the Ford Foundation. And both are deeply involved in still another organization carrying across generations that we'll talk about a little later on. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Let me start with you, Aijan. Tell us about the mission and work Of the National Domestic Workers Alliance.
1: The National Domestic Workers Alliance is the nation's voice for our nannies, our house cleaners, and our home care workers who work inside of our homes providing critical caregiving and cleaning services every single day. The workforce is over 92 percent women and majority women of color. Black Mm. women and immigrant women of all backgrounds. We strive to make this work good work, to bring dignity and respect to the work and the people who do it.
0: On any given day, Ajahn, not these days, of course, but normal days, how many women are employed in U.S. homes as domestic workers?
1: About two and a half million.
0: Wow, that's amazing. What's their median income?
1: It depends on if we're talking about childcare or Mm -hmm. Home care, the average wage of a home care worker in the United States is about $16,000 per year. Oh
0: my. Mm-hmm. And I know you've done surveys of these workers. What are some of the things that turned up in them?
1: That 82% going into the COVID crisis, 82% of domestic workers did not have a single paid sick day. And this is what we know. We know that this is a workforce that works incredibly hard and in so many ways powers our entire economy because they enable so many of us to go to work knowing that our loved ones are in good hands. And yet they work without access to health care, without paid time off, paid sick days, even a living wage to be able to stock up on groceries in a time of crisis. And so domestic workers came into the crisis with a tremendous amount of insecurity and that is precisely what we need to change.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sarita, the Future of Workers, with the ERS at the end in parentheses, tells me you're more interested in people than in robots. What's your mission?
2: Well, our mission at the Future of Workers program at the Ford Foundation is we're focused on ensuring that all workers, regardless of status, have equal rights to labor protections, social protections, are decoupled from work status, and it's guaranteed to all and that workers are in a position to shape the policies and the economic models that so drastically affect their lives. Mm
0: -hmm. What is essential work? What are people getting wrong about essential work? And maybe through this pandemic, how is this helping people finally to start get it right?
2: Well, essential work is work that makes all other work possible and yeah. helps drive our economy and so it's a really interesting moment in this that this crisis has really shined the light on the vast number of workers that everybody depends on, whether it 's grocery retail workers, certainly, as Igen was talking about just now, domestic workers, home care workers, child care workers there 's so many, let alone essential workers in the healthcare care sector in the context of a crisis that we 're in. But the point is, these are workers, the vast majority of essential workers that we refer to today have been largely low wage workers. They've lacked benefits. They've lacked the kinds of social protections that many other workers take for granted. These are workers that are, many of them have been invisible in our society. They've been undervalued in our society. So not only is it about low wages, but not having basic like access to vacation or paid sick days and many of the issues that we see bubbling up in our discourse today about who these workers are and what their needs are they're also parents they're also Uh children they are humans who have families themselves who are looking to not only to be able to sustain themselves and their families but are often facing massive barriers and obstacles to being able to do that.
0: Sarita, why is it that all of these jobs pay so poorly, in your opinion?
2: I think that they're, again, very undervalued in our society as a whole. There's an assumption that this work is not important and as critical as other types of work in our economy. So the assumption is we can just get away with paying very low wages uh. and not providing any kind of benefits. So one is about values, like how we value this type of work. The other is the changing nature of work that has happened. Some of these jobs at one time were permanent jobs that now are subcontracted, like with the fissuring of our economy, Ah. we see much more subcontracting, we see much more temporary and just a rise in precarious work. And unfortunately, many of these workers fall in that category of facing incredible precarity. So who is the employer and who gets to make these decisions? And they're caught in this web of frankly, a lack of transparency around some of these core questions.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. So when you realized the coronavirus was here, Aijan, well, NDWA, you guys really went into rapid response mode. What did you do?
1: Well, we started with listening to workers, which we have always done and we just really tried and every channel that we have to listen to workers and what their experiences were very early on in the crisis even before the stay-at-home orders came down we were hearing reports from cleaners who were having their clients cancel on them we were hearing nannies losing their jobs we were hearing just dramatic losses in jobs and income very early on and a real fear around food insecurity and how people were gonna take care of their own health and their own families amidst this crisis. We also heard from our essential workers who continued to work through the crisis. Home care workers, for example, provide life-saving services to some of the most vulnerable populations to the virus. So many instances, they're the only lifeline to older people and people with disabilities and people with chronic illnesses to receive such basic needs as medication and food and just contact, any kind of human contact with the world. And these essential workers were going to work without protective equipment, without Mm -hmm. access to testing or care, and their own children were home from school, and so they had to figure out what to do with their own children. And many of them, like Maggie, who is a caregiver in Chicago, had a son who was home from school and literally took him with her to make sure that her 94 year old client had her food and medication and had what they needed. And this is the story of literally millions of workers who are basically keeping us safe and keeping this economy, holding this country together, and they have none of the basics. And that is what we have the opportunity to address, not just for essential workers in the midst of a pandemic, but I hope that it reveals to the entire country just how unsafe our safety net is and just how many workers fall through the cracks of our protections in this country.
0: Sounds to me too that Maggie should have been included in that applause at seven o'clock in the evening with all these other folks as well.
1: Maggie needs more than an applause.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How about a parade? <laughs>
1: you know, <laughs> Maggie deserves an applause, a parade, and hazard pay, health care, child care, workers' rights. This is the thing here is. Yeah. He jumped into motion to address the fact that there was really no end in sight to the fact that people did not have any income and any means to put food on the table. And so we launched an emergency assistance fund called the Coronavirus Care Fund to be able to provide cash assistance in the form of $400 payments um, to workers in need around the country. We also created a COVID-ready caregiver training program so that the caregivers who are continuing to work had tools and resources for them to help them stay safe while they're doing so. We also created an emotional support text line for caregivers to be able to get support from their peers in real time when they needed it. This is such an isolating time for so many caregivers right now. And we just wanna make sure that everyone knows that they are not alone. And we are in this together. And they are a part of a community of workers and caregivers who are going to be there for them. Mm-hmm. And that is how we're getting through this. In addition, yeah. to the policy advocacy that we must do to ensure relief reaches every worker, every family who needs it in this moment of crisis.
0: Good work. Sarita, I grew up in a time where there was a far greater balance between management and labor. But unions and collective bargaining seem pretty much to all be forgotten. What does that picture today look like in America, and how does it compare to other nations around collective bargaining?
2: You're absolutely right that there has been such a dramatic shift from the 1950s, if you will, to today. Right now, current union membership is about 10% of the working population. It's really dramatically fallen from its heyday of 30% of representation. That is by design, that is not by accident. Um, <laughs> we should be very clear about that, that this has happened as a result of really attacks on unions, attacks on bargaining rights. We saw it as recent as the Janus decisions that happened just last year, Like. 18 months ago. So we are just seeing the stripping away of voice and power at the bargaining table. And really, unfortunately, the US, in relationship to the world, has the lowest union membership density globally. But the reality is, the stripping away of collective bargaining rights is happening across the globe. Uh There's a real concern right now about the ability for workers around the world to actually exercise their freedom of association and their voice in this moment, which as you can imagine is so important in this moment of an economic downturn. And as we think about what are the new economic policies that we need moving forward and to ensure the kinds of labor protections and social protections that we need, now more than ever, workers need this voice, need to have the bargaining power to really contend with the immense concentration of corporate power that we see happening both in the U.S. and around the world.
0: Talk a little bit more about those social protections. We're talking about collective bargaining, but what about the social protections in this country, that safety net? Again, how are we doing compared to the developing world and the rest of the world?
2: We are far behind the rest of the world when it comes to basic like paid leave policies, for example, paid family medical leave. Actually, it was very heartening to see in the moment of this crisis, the discourse around paid leave really surfacing the way that it has and being prioritized the way that it has, because I think families, workers today, I know friends and neighbors have realized we don't have the kind of care infrastructure that we need to be able to remain doing work and have others care for our loved ones. (laughs) Or if I care for my loved ones, I don't have the support I need to make sure I can do that and not age into poverty. So there's a whole realm of social protections around paid family medical leave, access to child care, access to elder care uh, or long-term care in this country. There's also a whole other set of social protections, access to health care, like basic in other countries. There's universal healthcare, and this has been a long debate in this country, but the reality is there are still too many people who don't have access to basic healthcare in the way that they need, and then certainly other social protections like retirement, security, and much more.
0: Yeah, a lot of work to do. Aijan, raising the wages of domestic and home care workers. Now, these workers are no longer invisible. I think people will now freely acknowledge they are truly essential, And as some people who have taken on these tasks themselves have learned, this is really hard, hard work. So how does all of that, how will all of that translate into increased pay for these vital workers?
1: I think it's really a matter of political leadership and commitment. I think that we have for the first time a moment in this country where There is a majoritarian awareness that there are so many low wage workers who are essential, who we have left unsafe and unprotected and we have undervalued, who deserve protections and who need to be safe because they keep us safe. And so I see this as a unique and unprecedented opening to transform wages and working conditions for low-wage workers in this country. Senator Warren and Representative Rokana have created a framework at the federal level called the Essential Workers Bill of Rights that includes hazard pay and child independent care and paid leave and protective equipment and access to testing and treatment. These should be, in the end, not just a set of rights in a time of a pandemic, but I believe that this is the framework for what should be universal rights for all working people in this country? If we started out seeing essential work as just healthcare workers, nurses and doctors, and then we started to become awakened to the fact that delivery workers and grocery workers and home care workers and domestic workers are also essential, might it mean that everyone who is working is actually essential and Mm -hmm. is a really important part of our economy? and should have an expectation in this country that prides itself on work and the dignity of work. Shouldn't we establish a whole new commitment to working people in this country? That's really how I see it. And if we can give a $500 billion corporate giveaway as part of a relief package, we can certainly invest at least that much in the working people who are actually powering us through this crisis.
0: I think after seeing how some of that money has been spent, uh, and you can't ever say again, we don't have the money for it. We've seen where some of that money has gone. So that excuse no longer holds. And in this time, Sarita, the Ford Foundation, along with a couple of other major foundations, you committed several million dollars to a fund to aid workers and families. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yes, yeah, so along with an incredible group of funding partners, we were proud to launch the Families and Workers Fund to directly support workers like Maggie as D- Ijen talked about, families and communities hardest hit by the economic and health crisis resulting from COVID-19. And through this fund, we've raised over $9 million for organizations that are on the front lines. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah, thank you. But really for organizations that are on the front lines, protecting workers and families from sinking deeper into poverty during these initial months, and very importantly, supporting policy and advocacy efforts for long-term economic recovery. So the fund was aiming to help support the immediate response as well as build towards the long-term recovery. Ultimately, we aim to raise twenty million dollars to ensure our grantees can respond to the pandemic in a matter that's both again fast acting but long mm-hmm. lasting and really informed by The people most affected, people like Maggie. And while all of our lives have been impacted by this pandemic, we know it's so critical that we address the exacerbated effect on low-income workers and their families. That was really the impetus behind this fund in this moment. The truth is, a lot of people have lost their jobs, as we've seen in recent weeks, and we've seen soaring unemployment filings in recent weeks. More than 40 million people have applied for unemployment benefits during this pandemic, and roughly 21.5 million are currently receiving them, or they're working longer hours than ever before at grocery stores or in hospitals across the country, and so we know these communities need our direct support. But the other thing I'll say about the fund that's really important is this acknowledgement across philanthropy that there are deep structural barriers in our economy that have long plagued low wage workers in this country, from low pay to the shrinking benefits that we've been talking about and declining union membership. Working people have long been left behind by broader policy advancement. And so this crisis really emphasizes how critical it is to make sure workers in this country have, uh, that we're all playing a role to both support them, but that our policies are really speaking to those needs directly. And We think philanthropy can make a remarkable impact right now in tributing and creating emergency response funds during the times of crisis but also to make sure that, again, we're supporting the long-term policy change that puts them workers at the center of the economic and recession response.
0: And if I could add to that, I think there have also been some structural barriers in philanthropy that has (laughs) exacerbated this, and that really needs to be looked at as well.
2: Fair enough. And that's actually the promise of this fund. It's a very diverse set of funders who have come together. It isn't sort of the usual suspects of social justice philanthropy. We've been able to partner with corporate foundations, with tech philanthropy, with Philanthropy that's been focused on children and families and more social services. It's a real diversity of funders coming together to say, let's actually learn from each other's work in this moment and actually get at what you just lifted up. What have been some of the structural barriers and what yeah. are ways you can practice differently?
0: Yeah, well, it's not like you put together a very healthy ecosystem, and that is so important. You have both been champions, Aizen, of universal family care. What is it and what is the case for it?
1: Universal Family Care is the idea that there should be universal access to resources to support our family care needs across the lifespan. So the idea is there would be one social insurance fund that we all contribute to that we can mm-hmm. all benefit from that helps us afford childcare, long-term care and paid family leave including support for people with disabilities. Basically, it's everything we need to care for our families while we're working. The reality of this time is that as the baby boom generation ages and people live longer, we're essentially adding an entire generation onto our lifespan. But Mm -hmm.
2: we've,
1: We've not updated our policies, our safety net, or our culture to really adapt to that. And at the same time, millennials are having children of their own at a rate of 4 million babies born per year. So on both ends of the generational spectrum, there's just an increase in the need for care. Right now, we have no infrastructure in place to support that whatsoever. And families are just really struggling under the pressure. There's this concept of the sandwich generation that's squeezed between the pressure of caring for aging parents, and caring for young children. Meanwhile, 70% of our workforce makes less than $50,000 per year. So how are you going to afford the care you need, which is so fundamental? So this idea is basically that in the 21st century, given that in most households, most adults work outside of the household, and most people have families that they're responsible for caring for, that we should be offering universal access and support as a collective responsibility in this country to help us care for our families while we contribute to the economy, while we work, while we offer our talents and our creativity in helping this country grow. So that's the concept of it. I think that now more than ever, more people are awakened to just how important care is, just how universal a need it is and how fundamental it is as people have their kids home from childcare and from school and their parents are getting evacuated from nursing homes. This is really a care moment for this country. And I'm really hopeful that it will, in the context of our recovery conversations, that members of Congress will really take this seriously, that this is an opportunity to update our care infrastructure for the 21st century in a way that actually sets us up as a country for success.
0: And it does sound like an infrastructure program. It sounds like building roads and fixing bridges. We have 40 million people out of work. This could be a big big component of getting those people back to work with long-term careers and good jobs.
1: And care jobs mm-hmm. are care infrastructures at, at the end of the day human infrastructure. Yes, right. On Care workers like our members to support our families, but how can they sustain doing this work on sixteen thousand dollars per year? It's not possible. But imagine if they were living wage jobs with benefits and real economic mobility. These are going to be the jobs of the future. Whether they're right. not, it is unconscionable that we not try to make them good jobs that people can really sustain on.
0: Mm-hmm. And. That idea, Sarita, along with a number of others, you guys have been promoting through an organization called Caring Across Generations. Tell us about them.
2: Caring Across Generation brings together aging Americans, people with disabilities, care workers, and families to transform the way we care in America. And really to ensure that our aging loved ones truly can age with dignity. And so, Caring across generations has actually been working, and just building off of what Aijin was saying around the need for a care infrastructure, has been really working to figure out how do we best ensure that care um, is accessible and affordable for all families? Secondly, how do we have supports for family caregivers? Ijin just talked about the sandwich generation as an example. How do we ensure that families, more families, have the supports in place in order to care for their loved ones and continue to work, for example? So what are the types of supports that family caregivers need? And thirdly, how we strengthen and grow the care workforce for all the reasons Reasons we just talked about so uh, caring across generations has been building that framework has been helping to support state campaigns across the country and building out the vision for universal family care that Ijin just spoke about. So just as an example, in Washington state, Caring Across Generations alongside many partners in the state helped win the Long-Term Care Trust Act, which was the first state social insurance program on long-term care that was huge and a model for what other states are beginning to look at. A few years prior to that, Caring Across Generations played a pivotal role in helping with what's known as the Kapuna Caregiver Program in Hawaii that was creating a financial benefit for mm-hmm. Caregivers um, who are caring for their loved ones. So caring across generations has both been moving state policy campaigns as well as helping to shift the culture of how we think about care and caregiving in this country, how we truly value care and caregiving and those relationships. And so caring across has done tremendous work in really shifting pop culture, like working with pop culture and creatives to help tell the story of care and caregiving and humanizing who families are, who we are. I personally am a family caregiver. My Mm -hmm. father has Alzheimer's, I care for him and my mom, and I work full time. How do we help amplify these stories so that what has felt like such a personal issue and private issue is actually brought out into the social sphere so that we can think about more collective solutions to these real struggles and pain points that families are experiencing around care and caregiving?
0: Yeah, well, that's a great reframing, and you change mindsets before you change behavior, and that's what you're doing. As we have discussed, so many of these essential workers, toiling away in low-paying jobs, are people of color and immigrants. What has been the impact on them of the senseless killing of George Floyd, and in what ways does this help inform your own work? Let me start with you, Sarita.
2: Yes, the senseless killing of George Floyd and all the immense mobilization that we have seen, if anything, has furthered our commitment as a foundation to really addressing the drivers of inequality in this moment and really seeing the systemic nature of economic inequality, racial inequality in a much deeper way, and that means that there's a tendency, there can be a tendency in philanthropy to silo these issues, and I think that's also true across movements, that we sort of silo these issues, but we know that people that we're talking about, working people, actually have multiple identities here and are impacted by all of these systems that aren't working. And so for the Ford Foundation and for the Future of Workers Program, it has really amplified our need to continue supporting our grantees like National Domestic Workers Alliance and many others who are really working at this intersection and ensuring that we're not just putting out Band-Aid solutions, but we're really addressing the systemic problems and then really amplifying the bold ideas that are needed in this moment to address what has been a broken system for way too long.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, I'll leave it at that for the moment. I guess the only other thing I would say is We have been really inspired as we talk to grantees across our portfolio who are taking major risks in this moment, in the moment of the coronavirus and social distancing, in a moment of economic downturn and the risk of losing their jobs or they are unemployed, and in this moment of incredible, both the systemic nature of police brutality and the killing of Black people and the criminalization of black and brown communities that we see happening across the country, the perseverance and the resilience of essential workers to stand up in this moment and really risk their lives and say, no more. We want Uh something different. We deserve something different. And actually, we have hopes and dreams for what our future can be. And we are gonna mobilize and protest and express ourselves in ways that help pave that path forward.
0: It's been inspiring. Your thoughts, Aisha?
1: So at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, we have a black organizing program called We Dream in Black that's focused on organizing black domestic workers. What the leaders of this program have been saying throughout, and I think what we know through looking at the data also is that Black families, workers and communities have disproportionately borne the brunt of the COVID crisis, of the economic crisis that has unfolded with job loss disproportionately affecting Black workers with the deaths and the spread of the virus disproportionately affecting Black families. And now to have laid bare in this moment, the generations of pain and loss of life at the hands of the police on top of all of these assaults is the moment that we're in. And it comes in the context of a long history of Black women disproportionately bearing the burden of caring for American families. Mm -hmm. Some of the first domestic workers in the United States were enslaved Black women, and this work professionally has always been associated with black women and immigrant women, women of color. And the exclusion of domestic workers from labor protections has its roots in the legacy of slavery in the United States. So anti-black racism has shaped every dimension of life for domestic workers and particularly for black domestic workers who are now holding the pain of their communities on so many levels. And I think it's to them that we need to look for solutions in the future. We need to really follow and really center the experiences of Black women and families and workers in this moment. And I think it's a really powerful moment to do that because for the first time, we also have a majoritarian awareness about the depth and the pervasiveness of anti-Black racism in this country. It has infected every aspect of American life, and we have an opportunity to uproot it and to make the structural changes that are so long overdue. And they're absolutely connected to how we recover economically. These police budgets are so inflated. Mm Imagine if we pivoted those police budgets to improving wages for childcare workers who are disproportionately Black women. Just a simple (laughs) reinvestment in communities that have been so divested from.
0: Just move a line item. That's all you got to (laughs) do.
1: It's it's just that simple. And it's a statement of values and who we want to be as a country. And I think the majority of people in this country want us to make that line item change immediately.
0: You optimistic?
1: I am. I
0: have
1: to be. It is my (laughs) job to be hopeful every day and to just kind of whack our way through the crises and figure out a path forward. I'm hopeful. There's so many protesters out on the streets risking it all right now, Mm -hmm. fighting for the future of this country. There's so many essential workers out there working every day, risking their lives, fighting for us and the least we can do is fight for them too.
0: Absolutely. So let me ask you each a closing question, starting with you, Sarita. If there was a single action that a listener could take to help shape policy that would address the issues that we've just discussed in a meaningful way, what would you have them do?
2: Well, I would have them be truly civically engaged. (laughs) and That means really supporting policies right now, which means putting the pressure on their legislators to do the right thing. I say that because I think our notion of democracy in this country keeps shrinking. Mm-hmm. And this notion of the only time to be civically engaged is to vote. And don't get me wrong, that is also important to do. We must but vote. There... <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but there is a daily civic orientation that we need to bring back into our society and our culture again, that everybody has a role to play in this moment to actually address the many things wrong that we're seeing that's been broken open and that they have a voice and an ability to actually take action in this moment. And that's what my hope is for listeners, that you really take stock of that. People struggled for years For your ability to have a voice in your democracy, use it. Use it smartly.
0: Absolutely. And I also think, if I can add, I think we have to start younger. Uh, You can't expect people to start voting at 18. When I start to think about people who get in shape or become athletes or anything, you do it as kids and you keep on doing it for the rest of your life. And you just don't all of a sudden hit a birthday in your late teens or whatever and then say, oh, all of a sudden I'm going to get civically engaged. It doesn't work.
2: I was just going to say on that note, that is absolutely true. And young people actually have so many bold ideas right now of what is needed in terms of a path forward, You're because right. the future that we've created for them is so bleak. And so what is our role and responsibility in engaging young people now in the conversations about the future? And I just think we can be so much more creative as parents, as sisters, as aunts, as uncles, as grandparents, and really, truly having these discussions with our younger loved ones.
0: You're right ai what action would you encourage people to take to help improve the circumstances and lives of these women and these families?
1: I would encourage people to show up. And show up means more than just an applause, although I love the applause. (laughs) I think it's a beautiful act of recognition. But this is a historic moment right now. And we have the opportunity to really reset our economic frameworks, our racial equity frameworks, so many frameworks. And we only do that through people taking action and making it known that they will not stand for the status quo any longer, that we need dramatic change. We are in an election year and a lot of people are gonna be vying to lead this country forward. And so it's our opportunity to demand of them to ask more of them and ask the most of them because we are in a generational shift moment. This could be our New Deal moment. And it Mm -hmm. it is our New Deal moment in a way to really reset our social contract and our framework for the 21st century in a way that has been so long overdue but not glossing over the deep, deep, deep fissures and the deep pain that has been built into our legacy in this country, specifically around race, racism, and anti-Black racism in particular. Let's really take it on. Let's make the change in our systems and our structures that this moment offers us the opportunity to make so that we can look back and tell our children and our grandchildren, that we were a part of this historic leap forward for this country. We came out of the worst crisis we never could have imagined. Mm-hmm. And we leapt into the future, and a future that's going to be much, much better for them.
0: Well, certainly a moment we can't afford to lose. I want to thank you, Aijen and Sarita, for being here today, for sharing this information, as well as your great insights on this matter. It was such a pleasure to have you both on the show. Be well.
2: Thank you. Thank you.